This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today is another installment of the We Need to Talk About series. We're going to talk about Steven Crowder. I'm going to give a big content warning for domestic violence right up at the top because I'm going to be talking about a video that came out a few weeks ago that displays some pretty abusive and controlling techniques between a husband and a wife. So if domestic violence is a topic that is sensitive for you, I just want to know, I want you to know that this episode is going to pretty heavily focus on it. If you have never heard of Steven Crowder before, Crowder is a conservative commentator who originally made it big on the internet with these change my mind debate videos he would do, where he would essentially go to a college campus, set up a table with a big sign that had like a a topic on it and invite undergrad students to come and debate him on these pretty big political topics. The content was pretty shocking because... Crowder was clearly coming in well-prepared for these debates with talking points, sources, a camera crew, etc., and talking to kids who are like 18, 19 years old who aren't as prepared and aren't media figures. And so the clips that he would end up posting would often be of him completely owning on so-called liberal college kids and him essentially winning the debates with a debate partner who's not prepared and significantly younger than him. If you've ever seen that meme template that says change my mind and, you know, people change what the the words on the sign says, that's Steven Crowder in the picture. Um, For a while, he was a commentator or a figure on Fox News, but he was asked to leave due to some controversies around his content. And for the last few years, he's been mostly making content on YouTube where he does kind of like a daily commentary news show. It's pretty heinous. I've seen clips of it, like just pure misinformation, a lot, a lot of racism, like an uncomfortable amount of racism. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) people are racist and Steven Crowder is like winning at being racist. And it's really, really difficult to watch. And yeah, it's just he, he plays it off as if it is comedy, but it is not funny. And it is very like harmful and hurtful um, comments and like accents and jokes that he'll do. He also does a lot of content that's focused on uh, trans people, very transphobic content. There's a video of him where he dresses up as a woman and goes into a gym and tries to like start fights or something. But the video really backfires because it just shows that people really don't give a care at all about what you're wearing out in the world. And on the whole, are pretty accepting of people being in public spaces, no matter what they look like, um, or how they dress, or how they present, and so Crowder's video there really backfired. He also, during the, like, 2020 um, BLM riots and uh, protests, would go out onto the street and try to provoke black people into fighting him and baiting them with racist content. 
there's a pretty infamous video of him talking to someone who's painting over the boards that are put up on a building like not graffiti but like actual street art it's like a very beautiful painting and he starts trying to go to this guy into some weird conversation about private property and how black people need to be grateful for what they have or something and the artist like stays pretty chill and is able to handle Crowder quite well but you can see that across all of this content Steven Crowder's whole purpose is to provoke people and to provoke people into looking like they're the bad guy so that then he has these talking points to say that you know x and y group are all crazy and they're all violent and they're all mentally ill or you know whatever his point is so that is really his place in i think the conservative sphere is just to provoke people earlier this year i think in 2023 um he had a pretty big issue with the daily wire who's another um conservative outlet that's um owned i think partially owned and created by ben shapiro the daily wire had offered steven crowder a deal to come on join their channel and you know have kind of like the daily wire behind his content and he threw a little hissy fit about the contract stated that they were part of big tech and trying to cancel him because the contract had some terms in it about like if he gets banned from YouTube, then the amount of money Daily Wire will give him will go down because he's making them less money if he's banned off of a platform. And he has been periodically banned from several social media platforms. He's had his YouTube channel suspended, gosh, probably like three or four times just because of the like abhorrent things that he says. And so he threw this little temper tantrum about the Daily Wire and uh, ended up kind of blowing up that relationship between him and Ben Shapiro, which has then led to uh, a big split in these kind of conservative media circles with people like Candace Owens being um, against Steven Crowder and people like Alex Jones supporting Alex uh, Alex Crowder. They've combined into one horrible man. <laughs> Alex Jones supporting Steven Crowder. So that all had happened earlier this year before a video between Steven Crowder and his wife leaked to the press in the last month, and that is going to be the focus of this episode. I do think the context of who Steven Crowder is and how he focuses on these very controversial and contentious tactics to get people to, like, kind of react to him or react to the bait he's putting out there is important when talking about the way that we see him talking to his wife in this video. I think that a lot of times... Public personas are a good hint to how somebody is in their private life. Not always. It's not 100%. And I'm not saying that, like, you know, just how because of a a public figure presents themselves, we can have a 100% insight into their private life. But with Crowder, you can see that his very... I, I have no other word aside from contentious, but it just like the way that he provokes people in public and on his show and, and his other content becomes clear to me that that is how he interacts with other people based on how we see him talking to his very pregnant wife. So I'm going to jump into giving a brief description of the video and why some of those things are considered abusive. His response to it, which continues to perpetuate uh, controlling and demeaning behavior toward his wife or his ex-wife. And then I have a couple of statistics from some studies about the relationship between conservative politics and um, like religious based conservative politics and domestic violence that I think are pretty important and uh, flesh out this conversation a little bit more. So without further ado, I'm going to 
this part you may want to skip if domestic violence is not your thing or you're not interested in hearing about it because I'm going to describe what happens in the video and it is not very nice. So just heads up that the next probably like 15 minutes are going to be details about the video right after we take a quick break. Okay, so the video leaked in uh, last month, I think in, in April. Um, the video is actually from June 2021. And the reason that the video came out is that apparently since the end of 2021, Steven Crowder and his wife have been in divorce proceedings and are no longer living together and essentially no longer in a relationship. That is not something that anybody knew. It had been like pretty secretive. Uh, it had been a process that they did not want to be in the public eye. Um, however, Steven Crowder had made a comment on one of his shows a few days before the video came out where he brought up that his wife was divorcing him and that it was an, uh, a no contest divorce in the state of Texas. What that means is that one partner can ask for a divorce without having to give a specific reason and the divorce proceedings can start. Different states differ in how they go about divorce proceedings. Some states you have to have a reason like um, demonstrating that there was some sort of abuse in the relationship or that there was um, irreconcilable differences and some states have these no contest divorces. Crowder brought up his divorce in the context of him thinking that it was wrong that women have the right to divorce their abusive husbands without any warning or consent from the husband. And in my eyes, it makes a lot of sense that we would allow people to leave their abusive partners um, without asking for the abusive partner's consent, because I don't think the abusive partner would let go of the person that they are abusing. So it seems to me like a good thing society has done is having no contest divorces so that people can leave difficult or harmful relationships without needing the person who's harming them to give permission to leave, because we know that that's not going to happen. So Crowder makes this comment about the divorce starts to complain about how it's not fair that his wife can just leave him and says a lot of very misogynistic stuff about how women like, you know, women, women be women, right? They'd be stealing money from men and they'd be horrible people or what, you know, whatever. In response to that, his wife or his wife's family, we're not quite sure, sent a video of ring camera footage that was taken in June of 2021. They sent it to a uh, I want to say internet figure. I don't think he's quite a journalist, but they they sent it to um, a person who put it on his Substack and subsequently published an article um, with with some quotes from the family. The video is quite distressing. In the video, his wife Hillary is eight months pregnant. She was pregnant with twins at the time, so I'm guessing I've never been pregnant, but I'm guessing that eight months pregnant with twins is going to be pretty uncomfortable on the body. Just a guess to me. Um, but they're having a, this disagreement. They're in the backyard and she's asking if she can take the car to go to the grocery store because she needs to pick up some groceries. Steven Crowder is sitting in on the patio furniture in the back seat with a cigarette or a cigar in his hand, which already it's like, great, you're smoking around your pregnant wife. Ding number one. And he starts to berate her for wanting to take the car. And he's demanding that before she takes the car, she needs to give his dog some medicine. And she seems to be very uncomfortable with that, saying that she's worried it could be toxic to her because she's pregnant and she's not willing to touch that that medicine at this time. 
He tells her that she needs to put gloves on. She needs to get over it, that she's not being a good wife and that she needs to essentially buckle down and give this dog the medicine. You see her several times throughout this video, pick up the dog leash and put it back down, try to pick up the keys, put it back down. She, she seems to be like in distress and she's halfway between like just getting up and leaving and taking the car, even if he says no, and staying and doing what he's telling her to do. She, she seems very conflicted. And again, she's eight months pregnant. She looks incredibly uncomfortable. She is also emotionally distraught. At one point, she snaps at him and she tells him that he is sick and his abuse toward her is sick. And then backtracks and starts saying, you know, no, I love you. I love you so much. And is trying to get him to stop yelling at her by telling him that she loves him. He continues to smoke (laughs) and, you know, continues to berate her. He's sitting down and she's standing up. He tells her that she can't take the car because he might need the car to go to the gym to see his friends or to see his parents. And that if she takes the car, he will be trapped at home. The assumption here seems to be that they only have one car for the household and he is refusing to let her take the car and is also refusing to like go get groceries if he takes the car out. He basically tells her that she needs to like take an Uber to the grocery store, which like that's that's ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. Like if you if you're the one who wants to go see friends, that's when you take the Uber like someone who's going to go get things to pick up to bring to the house probably needs a car more than somebody who's just going to go visit somebody. And he's saying it in this way of like, well, what if I want to go see my friends and you have the car? Like that she has to be responding to any possible potential need he might have in the future, not just like what's going on in front of them. He, um, then starts to tell her that she's not a good wife. She's not being very wifely and that she's refusing to do her wifely duties. And then starts to throw language at her about setting boundaries and saying, I drew a boundary. You cannot take the car. The video ends with them. She goes inside the house and he follows her inside. And some of the information that was leaked to the person who published the video is that per Hillary's family, after Stephen follows his wife inside the house, he says something to her along the lines of, I will fuck you up and you need to like watch yourself. He allegedly apologized to her for that comment, but that is um, something that it seems to be recorded in the depositions that they went through for the divorce proceedings. So that is, in essence, the video. The video is still available online if you want to go watch it for yourself. I watched it, like, in shock. It is shocking not because it's, like, the most violent abuse that you'll ever see. Like, he does not lay a hand on her. You know, I want to be very clear that I don't think there's been any accusations that He has physically abused her and there's no evidence in this video that he did anything to lay a hand on her. What you do see, though, is highly controlling behavior, definitely emotional and psychological abuse. He is just berating her constantly and you can see that his goal out of the conversation is to exert control over her. And and that is really something that's difficult to watch. Um... I think just like as a person, um, you know, it, it really doesn't matter like if I know these people or not. It's just to watch somebody exerting control over another person like that or attempting to exert control over another person like that. It's hard to watch. And I think oftentimes we we struggle with conversations around emotional and psychological abuse because it's hard to see the after effects, right? If 
if we see someone who's being physically abused, we might see them with a black eye and know that, oh, this person was hit by their abuser. There's, there's physical evidence here that this thing happened. But emotional and psychological abuse, although it does have a deep impact on the victim, it's not always as visible to the outside world. And the things that I saw from Hillary in the video were, to me, signs of someone who has had this type of, like, abuse leveraged at them before. The, the way that she kept, like, going back and forth, like, picking up the leash, putting down the leash, picking up the keys, putting down the keys, you could, I just, I observed a kind of pattern and this, like, internal debate with herself of, do I go, do I stay, do I go, do I stay? And it just really seemed like she was not in a position to be able to like kind of make a decision. Like she was really kind of stuck in, in this turmoil. Again, being eight months pregnant with twins, I'm sure she didn't have all of her cognitive resources about her. She probably did not feel super great either. It just made her more vulnerable to whatever was going on. Something that I also saw after this video came out was a lot of people in like comments underneath the video saying things like, well, why do they only have one car? Like he has so much money. Why do they only have one car? And to that, I say that is also a control technique that abusers can use. Having only one car means that if the abuser has the car and is away from the home, then the victim or the person being abused cannot leave as easily. They don't have access to the car. All of the things that abusers do, and I've talked about this before in some of my other episodes, but things that abusers do to their victims, the whole purpose is to isolate the victim from anyone who would help them. That may look like um, pressuring the victim to abandon friendships and cut off contact with, with other people. It may look like things like restricting access to a car or other means of transportation restricting access to the internet so that the person can't make connections with people online. Um, all these things like that where the, the goal is to isolate the person and then to help, not help, but to instill in the victim that the abuser has total control over them. So you can start to set this up by we only have one car in the household and only one person gets to make the decisions about who gets to take the car. The crux of this video, the whole like reason the conversation between them started is that Hillary is asking Stephen for permission to take the car, right? I, I don't want that to be lost in the conversation about this. The whole reason this started is she had to ask him if she could take the car. That, in my opinion, hints at there is this structure in their relationship where Stephen is the one who makes decisions and Hillary is not given the agency to make decisions like taking the car. There's a big difference between telling your partner, hey, I'm going to take the car because I got to run to the store. I'll be back in an hour, you know, as a courtesy to just let them know and asking, can I have your permission to take our car to the grocery store? There's a big difference between those two things. You know, I don't, I'm not recommending that anyone just like get in a car and leave and not tell your partner where you're at because that could also be a little bit scary. But one person in a relationship having complete control over resources is not a good sign, in my opinion, and a potential warning sign that something abusive is happening. Now, there could be other explanations for why they only have one car. Maybe they really don't have that much money. Maybe they don't have the parking space. Maybe they 
are concerned about the environment, although I don't really think so, given that <laughs> Stephen Crowder's views on climate change. But, you know, there are other reasons why they might only have one car. I do want to offer up, though, that this can be a control tactic that abusers use, especially in the context of this one of the partners needing to ask for, for permission to access that resource. After the video came out and really blew up across the internet, Crowder put out a video on his social medias with his statement um, about the video. He makes a claim that Hillary edited the footage and leaked it to the press to intentionally make him look bad. He states, broken marriages are ugly and in them people do ugly things in an attempt to justify the actions we see on the video. And then he vowed that he would be submitting a motion to the court to unseal all the records around the divorce or he would leak them himself, including medical and mental health records of both himself and Hillary. Although it seems that Steven Crowder put out this video to try to make himself look like the victim and make it look like Hillary was doing something wrong in leaking this video, even in his response, he still comes across as an incredibly controlling person. The threat to release all of their records is another attempt to try to exert control and power over his ex-wife. There is absolutely no reason for the public to have access to the medical, mental health, and deposition records from their divorce. If we needed to see it, then we would be seeing it. They have had this divorce being private for over two years, and then he comes out and threatens to release the files himself if the court won't allow it. This is private information. This is private health information, something I talked about in previous episodes about how we have HIPAA to protect private health information. It is not up to Stephen to release any information about his wife or his ex-wife. If he wants to go ahead and release his medical records, good for him. He's, he's welcome to have us all see how he got a cosmetic surgery to make his chest look more manly. That's fine. We're happy to see the records on that. It is not up to him to release somebody else's health records, and threatening to do that is a way in which he can exert control over her as well. It's controlling to say, I have this information about you and I will dangle it in front of the public if you don't comply with what I'm asking. Same with if he actually puts it out there. It doesn't seem like he has, but if he, if he were to in the future, to it, it's, it, it's controlling not only the narrative, but controlling her by saying, now all these people will see what is going on with you and you know you you won't be able to be in control of your public image i've already ruined it for you this is extremely similar to what i talked about with the scandoval howie mandel interview a couple episodes ago where tom sandoval uses his partner's mental health experiences as an excuse for why he cheated on her and continuously talks about her mental health without her permission and without her being present while i'm not arguing that tom sandoval is an abusive partner in the same way that Steven Crowder seems to be, there is something about weaponizing someone's mental health history against them to protect the person who is in the wrong. What goes on between you and your mental health provider or you and your healthcare provider is between you and the provider. It is not the business of anybody else. It is not salacious gossip for people to be reading or looking at. It is information that belongs to you and you alone as the patient. If anything, my guess would be that if Steven Crowder does get these mental health records released, what we will see is evaluations of a woman who was subjected to 
emotional and psychological abuse for several years, who gave birth to twins and didn't have a partner to support her because Crowder moved out several months after those twins were born and started living in a separate home. I get the sense that this threat is empty because he knows if we were to see those mental health records, it wouldn't paint him in a very good light either. Often when people go through divorce filings, both people are subjugated to a psychiatric evaluation, particularly when children are involved. The purpose of those evaluations, particularly in custody battles, is to determine who is mentally fit to be the parent or to be the sole uh, provider of custody, both legal and in terms of time. The psychologists who do those evaluations are not working for either of the parents. They are working in the best interest of the child. The evaluations can be very difficult to read, they can be incredibly intrusive, and they contain a lot of sensitive information. That is why they are supposed to be private. They are not for people to read because the purpose of them is to decide, are you fit enough to be a parent to this child? And in this case, it would be to twins. The language used in the reports is going to be very clinical, very professional. It will not be warm and fuzzy. It will be right to the point. And it can be really damaging for people to read those types of reports without the proper context or someone sitting with them and going through their feedback. So really, although he is threatening his ex-wife with releasing these records, it won't do him any favors to have those records released either, which is why I think it is an empty threat. If it wasn't an empty threat, he would have done it already. I, I really think he would have leaked them already if he had his hands on the documents. So I... I I don't think that he's going to do it because, again, it's going to have damaging information about him as well. It's going to come down to, is he willing to tank his own reputation to take down his his ex-wife as well? And unfortunately, that can happen in contentious, difficult, abusive relationships. The abuser is so hell-bent on punishing the victim and maintaining control over them that they will tank their own reputations if they become very desperate or do something that is like you know, far beyond what they may have been doing before. Again, I'm not alleging that Steven Crowder has physically abused his wife or done anything beyond what we've seen in the video, but between the video and his response to her, I'm not getting a pretty rosy picture of what was going on in that household and the information that has come out about how he chose to have an elective surgery while she was giving labor to their twins and then moved out of the house several months later, leaving her alone to care for twin infants, which is a heck of a lot of work. It just isn't adding up to me to a relationship that was healthy and thriving. I don't know much about Hillary Crowder either. She may be a terrible person and a horrible conservative, just like Steven Crowder. But at the end of the day, even if you have not so hot political beliefs, you still don't deserve to be abused or treated that way. There does seem to be a connection between political beliefs and domestic violence, however, so I'm going to talk about that in the next section, looking at two studies that I looked at that examined religious communities and prevalence of abusive behaviors, uh, but we're going to take a quick break first. All right, let's jump into some research. The first study that I looked at was a study that examined 70 churches in a conservative Christian denomination in the northern Pacific part of the United States. This study found that 65% of the sample endorsed some sort of controlling or demeaning behavior in their relationship across the lifetime of the relationship. They also found that women in the sample were more likely to have experienced some form of abuse and financial difficulties in the couple predicted more abuse or more um, abusive behaviors. 
The aspect of controlling and demeaning behaviors, I think, is very interesting in the context of these being conservative Christian couples in that the behavior is meant to keep people in line with both the religious kind of prescriptions of the community um, and within the structure of the relationship. While the article did not specify which denomination of Christianity these uh, the sample belonged to, there are some general things about conservative Christianity that I think can still be applied across various denominations. Typically, more conservative Christian denominations tend to have highly patriarchal hierarchies. This means that men are above women in all domains, both in the church and in the family. The head of the church is going to be a man, whether they call them a pastor, a clergy, a priest, etc. The leader of the church will be a man. The family is supposed to model this situation in the church as well, which means the man of the house, the husband, is the leader of the family with the wife and children being subservient to him, just as the parishioners or followers of the uh, religious leader will be submissive to him in the church. There are a lot of scriptures that get quoted to support this structure by saying things, quoting Bible passages that have things to do with women submitting themselves to their husbands and um, referring to the bride of Christ as the church, which is supposed to mean that the church mimics a, you know, marriage. And so marriage and the church have to mirror each other in some way. I'm not a religious scholar. (laughs) I'm not a theological expert. So I don't think that this is the place to kind of break down those scriptures to say if that's like an accurate application or not. However, I do think it is important to understand the context in which certain religious texts are written. And instead of just applying the blanket to the modern day, there needs to be some baseline understanding of the culture in which they were written and prescribed. Same with any historical text, you know, like the Constitution. You have to understand the context of the time in which it was written before you try to blanket apply it to the modern day. So in a way, highly conservative political ideals and conservative religious Christianity do have a lot of overlaps in that there is this blanket application of historical or ancient texts to the modern world without any understanding of the relevant culture that those topics were written about in. So this highly patriarchal structure where man is above woman in all domains of the religious Christian's life, I think sets up people to experience these controlling and demeaning behaviors that seem to border on emotional or psychological abuse. If it is the clergy's job to prevent and control his congregation from sinning, then the mirror of that is the husband's job is to prevent and control his wife and children from sinning as well. Therefore, I don't find it surprising that the majority of the sample endorsed these types of controlling behaviors as they think they go hand in hand with essentially trying to control behavior away from sin. It's also not surprising that being a woman was a a higher predictor of experiencing abuse because, again, these communities are set up to be highly patriarchal. The, the last point that came out of the study was that, that financial difficulties predicted more abuse is interesting as that is something that is found across samples and not just in a conservative Christian community. So even though these communities can be highly insulated and tend to isolate themselves from other aspects of the world, the same risk factors can still apply for domestic violence. Not having enough money puts stress on the family more stress on the family, especially in a patriarchal setup like that, can lead to more abuse. It's 
something that we've observed in other cultures and other communities, regardless of religiosity. And I think it just points to the fact that, unfortunately, abuse can be more common than maybe we want to think it is. It's also possible that financial difficulties are more common in religious uh, communities like this because in a patriarchal society where the man is the head of the household, it typically means that women are discouraged from working outside of the home. So if you're going to be a single-income family, many of these communities also believe in having as many children as possible. Single-income family with that many children is going to stretch budgets pretty thin, and that leads to... uh, added stress within the family dynamic and particularly within the relationship between the husband and wife. So that study was just more of kind of taking a survey of these communities and looking at what was going on. Another study that was done by some of the same authors, uh, Popescu and Drum, who did their first study, they did a mixed method study where they looked at religious communities versus non-religious communities to look at both the prevalence of types of abusive behaviors and the subjective experience of women in those communities. This second study found that religious communities tended to endorse higher levels of controlling behaviors and escalating violence than the non-religious or non-faith groups in the sample. Examples of controlling or demeaning behavior included being told what to do and expecting obedience from the partner, um, having household or family decisions made without consulting you, limiting involvement with other people, having daily activity, activities being monitored, um, being extremely jealous and or accusing the person of having an affair, or exhibiting a general contempt for your gender. So that would be like the husband endorsing these kind of like contemptuous beliefs about women in general, um, as well as toward his wife. Escalating violence included things like insulting, swearing, or calling the person names, destroying property or cherished possessions, threatening to hit or throw something at the person, throwing, smashing, or kicking something to frighten the person, and then pushing, grabbing, or shoving the person. So kind of that that range there, like going from verbal violence or verbal aggression all the way up to actually laying hands on the person. They separated out in this study escalating violence from severe physical abuse, with severe physical abuse being defined as Um, either threatening to use a weapon, using a weapon, or actually beating somebody up more so than just like pushing or shoving. And that was not endorsed as highly, the severe physical abuse, as the escalating violence was. The researchers also found that religious practices predicted professional help seeking and limited negative coping behaviors. So there was a positive side to being in these faith groups that they were more likely to get actual help or to, to seek help. Um, and less likely to engage in something more negative like substance use or cutting versus engaging in more positive coping behaviors like um, asking for help, praying, seeking social support, or reading self-help books. Interestingly enough, though, in the interviews, there were some interesting themes that arose. The women that were interviewed endorsed that after they experienced some type of intimate partner violence like the escalating violence or the demeaning controlling behaviors, if they went to talk to their clergy after that incident, they endorsed uh, increased emotional and spiritual pain. Interacting with clergy was something that made the situation worse. There were quotes from the women in the study that indicated they would have experiences where they would go to 
an elder or the clergy in the church and say things like, I need help. And the these were generally men in these positions. The men would respond with things like, you don't need to tell us what's going on or I'm finding it hard to believe because your husband is a good person or is a, is a spiritual man. He's never done anything wrong in front of me. So I'm having a hard time believing what you're saying right now. So although they were more likely to seek help when they sought help from their religious leaders, that experience was not always a positive or even helpful experience. This does make sense, right? If we talk about the way that the church is supposed to mirror a relationship with the, a man being the head of the body and demanding submission and certain types of behaviors from the congregation, then it's going to be very mirror to the abusive experience the woman is having in her relationship. That doesn't make it right. And I'm, you know, I'm not saying that as a justification, but I think it is a way for us to understand why domestic violence might be so prevalent in these religious communities and why it may be difficult for women, even though they're asking for help, to actually get the help going. Another theme that arose from the qualitative interviews was this idea of toxic spirituality. The women would endorse things like um, when they experienced abuse, they would just keep, they would read their Bible. They would turn to their Bible and pull on verses like turn the other cheek, you know, be more patient. And they thought that if they did that, then that's how they could get through the abusive situation. Um, or they believed that if they were being physically abused, that they couldn't report it because it was somehow within the confines of the church. And so it must be right if the church is endorsing this type of behavior. I can say from professional experience that I have worked with people who are in um, more highly conservative or high control Christian denominations, and I have heard this type of toxic, toxic spirituality coming from them as justifications for why they either stay in a very bad marriage or they stay in the community in general. A lot of these ideas come from the concept in Christianity that sin is part of individual responsibility, right? That like your sin is your responsibility. And if you are going through something that is even vaguely sinful, then in some way it is your responsibility to deal with it. Even if that quote unquote sin is someone harming you. There are also strong beliefs in these communities that God only gives you what you can handle. So if whatever is going on front on in front of you, you seem that you can't be handling it, then it is your problem. It is not God's problem. And you need to double down on your faith and work harder to deal with it. I think this makes people involved in these conservative Christian religions much more susceptible to abuse because anything that is considered to be bad about the world is a result of sin and therefore can be dealt with by praying and seeking forgiveness and confessing and through spiritual practices more so than any of the quote-unquote worldly interventions. There's also an element of social control. In fact, in the study, it was referred to as social control instrument of the religious community to reinforce the religious beliefs. So not only if you're trying to seek help from a clergy member, but maybe just other community members who are not high up in the church, but are just fellow parishioners, the community itself is policing these religious values and beliefs. If the religious values and beliefs are things like you must be subservient to your husband, you must as a woman not speak up, and you must 
not work outside the home and you must not make decisions for yourself, but your husband makes your decisions, the community is going to reinforce those, which makes you more likely to continue to be abused even when seeking help from the community around you. And lastly, the study did differentiate between religious practices and personal faith or spirituality practices. They found that personal faith is a protective and healing factor for members in their study and more like individual spirituality or personal beliefs about God, faith, the afterlife, whatever, those are more protective than the, the kind of like standardized or institutional religious practices and beliefs of the community. In short, I think these two studies demonstrate that conservative Christian ideas can make some people more vulnerable to domestic violence, whether it's emotional control or psychological control or actual escalating violence, sexual and physical abuse. There are a myriad of reasons why these communities make women more vulnerable to this type of abuse, and many of those reasons are inherent to the community. It's high control communities. It is communities that reinforce submission of women to men. It is communities that have a high patriarchal hierarchy, which does not always allow for space for women to seek help or to seek resources. Now, I'm not saying that Hillary and Steven Crowder were a part of the denominations that were looked at in these studies, and I don't really know what their personal beliefs are. I do know that Steven Crowder gets on his show every week and talks about how he's a Christian and that makes him better than everybody else, and I've heard him spew incredibly toxic religious beliefs in line with his racism and transphobia. He's also obviously highly conservative, given that he makes conservative content, he's worked for some of the biggest conservative outlets like Fox News, and again, everything that comes out of his mouth is the most extreme right-wing thing that you can think of. Short of it being such an incredible character, like Andy Kaufman-esque character that Steven Crowder is playing, I think it is likely that he and his wife were at least conservative, if not religious and conservative, and in these communities that reinforce this type of control over women. The situation and the video showed of Hillary experiencing that type of verbal beration from her partner is also a good reminder that intermittent partner violence can happen regardless of class, regardless of race, regardless of resources. This is a couple that's viewed to be rich, viewed to have unlimited resources, or at least way more resources than the average Joe. And still, the one of the partners struggled to leave the relationship, to, you know, be safe in the relationship. It can really happen across these lines. And I think it was an important time to talk about this intersection between conservatism, Christianity, and domestic violence. I think it's something to be aware of. It's something to note if you're in those communities or you have loved ones in those communities. I'm not saying that every church is out here abusing everyone and endorsing um, abusive behavior. However, I think that there is something about the high control and the intense focus on submission in certain conservative Christian circles that often lead women to be isolated from the rest of the world, to not have the right kind of social support within their communities and to just be more vulnerable to experiencing abuse. So that's my episode for the day. I know that it was kind of a heavy one, but when I saw the video, I knew that I needed to talk about it and talk about 
some of these risk factors for for um, intimate partner domestic violence. So I appreciate you sticking with me all the way through the end of this one, and I will see you in the next one. Bye-bye.